So th there's a saying that you sometimes hear around people who design things, people, you know, architects who design buildings or graphic designers who make posters or industrial designers who design, you know, what your potato peeler is like or what have you. And here's the phrase, form follows function, which means that the form, the way you design something, ought to be based on the thing that that thing is trying to do. Well, think about this, have you ever sat in a chair that looks great, like what a beautiful chair, and it is like deeply uncomfortable? <laughs> that, that is an example of form not following function, right? A chair is meant to be sat on and be comfortable, and if the form doesn't do that purpose, it's not doing it right. This is the principle why every car looks exactly the same now, right? Because at some point, auto manufacturers figured out the best way to make cars aerodynamic and fuel efficient, and so they just started designing cars to be most fuel efficient, which is why every single car looks exactly the same, because they wanna be able to put on their advertisement you know, this many miles per gallon for highway, stuff like that. Concept, where we're getting this? Okay. I said okay before you even agreed, but I just assumed you You're smart people. So there's a similar relationship between kings and their kingdoms. You learn a lot about what a king is like by learning more about his kingdom. And you can learn a lot about the kingdom by looking at the king. The two things are related, they flow from each other. Now in the Bible, the stories about kings are for the most part, not great. They were largely a bunch of fumblings and failures. If you were just to take a percentage of kings that were righteous versus kings that were not, you don't have a very appealing pie chart. Even, even the request to have a king was fraud, right? If you read Samuel, Israel's asking, they say, we want a king to be like the other nations. And when Samuel anoints Saul as king, he makes it clear, I'm anointing him, but the very fact that you're requesting it has shown that you have rejected God as your king. <laughs> I'm gonna do this, but let's be clear what's going on right here. But, as we pray every week, God's character is to have mercy, which is why he took this broken and distorted desire of his people and repurposed it for good and eventually gave them the good king that they needed. So as we already mentioned, this week in our liturgical calendar is Christ the King Sunday, because in Jesus, God gave his people a good king and still kept, <laughs> kept it true that God was supposed to always be their king. So Jesus is the human king that they needed and still God being their king. And it's on this King Jesus that we want to focus today. I loved how much that came out in worship. It like teed me up perfectly. It's keeping our eyes on Jesus that we want to do. And so we're going to look at how God talks about bad and good kings, how he looks at Jesus as king and what his kingdom is like, and how we can more fully live into Jesus' kingdom. So our Ezekiel reading is all about this comparison between bad kings and good kings. Um, bad kings, the shepherds of Israel, and God as their good king. So we read all these beautiful things that God would do for his people. But just before that, in the verses ahead of it, Ezekiel's naming the utter failures of the shepherds of Israel, their kings. So here's what he said. Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost, the lost, but with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So in contrast, this is what we read about God after he would take on this role as shepherd and he would be their shepherd and bring them back. And he said, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. 
I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them with justice. So the failures of the bad shepherds of Israel is that they did things to benefit themselves. And at the same time, they failed to actively seek the good of the people that they ruled over. But God is the good shepherd would gather them up and do all these wonderful things about binding up injured and strengthening weak. So it's absolutely true that when we read of the failures of the kings of Israel and Judah, on the top of that list of failures was idolatry, right? They incorporated all these other gods into the religious life of the people. But also when we read the prophets, it's very clear that one of the other failures of significant importance is a failure of justice. That those who are the weakest and most vulnerable in society were either neglected or actively oppressed. Unjust systems were created and people were not able to have their cases heard. The widow and the orphan were not taken care of. That is on repeat through the prophets. And so the good news of God becoming king is that those who are hurt and lost and weak will be cared for and comforted by a good king who loves them. So when we ask ourselves, what kind of king is this God that we worship? He's a king whose rule is defined by the care of those in need, defined by love and compassion. Right? The good news is that we have this king. His name is Jesus. And even now, he is sitting on his throne at the right hand of the Father. Tim described it really well. Advent is this weird season where we live remembering. Advent just means sort of coming. We remember Jesus' first coming. And we celebrate that, and yet we're also living in anticipation of a coming that is yet to come, his second advent. So as we head into that week, into that season, we have to fix our eyes on anticipation for Jesus to one day return. But Christ the King Sunday, this Sunday before Advent, is a reminder that while we await the not yet, there is much of the kingdom that has been established. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, is looking right up at the throne of Jesus to give that church a picture of what it means that Christ is king. So through this chapter, in chapter 15, Paul talks a lot about the resurrection of the dead. Because there were some Corinthians who said there wasn't going to be a resurrection of the dead. And Paul's response is, of course the dead are raised because Jesus has been raised. He writes that what we, what we read today as an assertion of what we believe about the risen Christ, that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that word first fruits ha has a, a callback, has a meaning. It's a reference to an Old Testament Jewish festival. The people of Israel were instructed to celebrate the day of first fruits, giving the very first part of their harvest to God. And they received these instructions about first fruits when they received the law, but they weren't supposed to celebrate it for the first time until they had entered the promised land. So those 40 years in the wilderness, they were not celebrating fruit, first fruits yet. But when they entered the promised land and God had delivered them out of the wilderness, then they could celebrate first fruits. Because offering our first fruits isn't just like an obligation. It's not God's tax upon us. It's a celebration of what God has and will do. This is why Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. It's the guarantee that more is coming. This is the first bundle of the crop, but there is a harvest yet to come. Victory has been achieved. Since Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can have confidence that we too will be raised from the dead and that the powers and principalities behind the evil of the world, every rule and power is going to be vanquished. 
Of course, <laughs> Paul has to say that to the Corinthians, and we have to say that to ourselves because it doesn't always feel like that, does it? <laughs> it does not feel like Jesus is seated on the throne all the time and that these powers have been given their death knell. But that's why Paul encourages them with this meditation on the resurrection. Jesus has defeated death. It will be ultimately defeated later, but its terminal blow has been delivered. So no matter how chaotic things look now, no matter how dire they appear, we can look ahead with confidence to a time when all things will be made right, when all things are restored. Not just because Jesus will win, but because Jesus has won. <laughs> Paul says that things are even now being subjected to Christ. This is the exact same kind of encouragement that John gives to the churches in Revelation. These churches that are under persecution and their friends and neighbors are being killed and the dragon in Babylon are raging. And John says, look behind the curtain. The martyrs are not defeated. They are victorious by the blood of the lamb. So just like the cross, what seems to be defeat, what looks to our eyes as the end is actually victory. This is our king, our king Jesus. And he taught his disciples to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But what, what does that mean? Do you ever have a non-Christian ask you a question about like Christianese and you're like, I, I don't even know, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> what, his kingdom come on earth as it, as it is in heaven. We say that all the time. What does it look like? Well, it looks like the world being put back to right. It looks like the world being made as it was meant to be. The establishment of justice. When things are wrong, when chaos runs rampant, putting things to right requires a bit of a judgment. When your kids are arguing and yelling in the other room, for you to come in and restore peace in the room, there has to be a, a, a judgment made, a rendering of a verdict. You can't just be like, nice, and they're like, you're right. <laughs> you have to come in and do something, right? This is why Dan reminded us two weeks ago that in many ways, the day of the Lord, days when God shows up in judgment to set things right, can be a terrifying day. And when you read of depictions of judgment throughout Scripture, there are these kind of two things going on at the same time. There's meant to be comfort. God's people, when they were oppressed, wanted the day of the Lord because they needed to be, they needed their justification. They need someone to come in and put things right. And for those who have been wronged and oppressed, the day of the Lord is a comfort. God will not let this go. The ways that you have been actively hurt, God does not miss that. God didn't miss it. Things will be made right. We saw that picture in Ezekiel, right? The good shepherd's going to come and he's going to take care of you. But it's also at the same time meant to make us uncomfortable, not scared or terrified. The judgment of the Lord isn't cause for us to run in fear, but it should cause some self-examination and repentance. It should force us to confront ourselves and say, where is it that my life does not line up with the kingdom that the king is ushering in? For God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in my life, what needs to be shaken up a little bit? Have I been trying to make God in my own image, trying to make his kingdom just a, a subservient part of my kingdom and relegating him to a subject of my authority? When do I want God's kingdom just to be a bunch of my good ideas? <laughs> Do you ever think that way that God's going to come and he's just going to do all the things you wanted to do all along? And you'd be like, nice job, God. I was saying that all along. <laughs> Maybe some ways, but probably a lot of ways pretty different than that. Maybe there's an area where I am actively holding back from God's rule. 
This is Jesus' depiction of the, the sheep and the goats is no different, right? Now, a few things about this passage. You can go down a lot of rabbit holes. I discovered a lot of rabbit holes in preparation. You know, who exactly, Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these. There's incredible amount of scholarly dispute about who the least of these are that are fed and clothed. How does this judgment seat relate to all the other judgment seat passages? And we, we line up every depiction of judgment. We try to like map it out and figure out like, okay, does, does this do this? Does it do this? I think it's important to recognize that so often we get caught up in learning how it all works to try and step back and get a picture of the system that we miss what scripture is actually telling us to do. <laughs> We're like obnoxious kids in class asking the teacher, hey, is this gonna be on the test? <laughs> While the teacher's trying to tell us something really important and we're like, I don't know, I'd like to just know what's gonna be on the test. Ignore the lesson, I wanna know how to get my A. It's even worse, it's like the teacher's telling us what's gonna be on the test and we're like, yeah, but what's your grading rubric? Like how much is this test weighted and can I just not study and still get past the class? Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hands of how many of you did that at some point, but I think this resonates a little bit. So let's pay attention. What is Jesus trying to say here, right? I think it's better to approach this more like a parable than a syllabus, a lesson rather than a grading rubric. And by doing so, it saves us from trying to have to force this passage to fit with everything else, especially as we understand salvation by grace through faith, right? A passage like this really pushes back on the sense that I thought I was gonna be judged based on whether or not my name was in the book of life. I didn't realize actions were gonna come into this at all. But Jesus doesn't mention anything about the book of life. He doesn't mention anything about about grace through faith, he just says, what did you do? So, two things can be true at the same time, right? As Paul says in Ephesians, it can be true that we are saved by grace through faith so that no one may boast. Thanks be to God that we stand on Jesus' shoulders and we stand behind him in the judgment. And yet, it can also be true, as scripture overwhelmingly witnesses, that we're gonna have to give some sort of account for our actions, right? I used to try and scare teenagers when we played dodgeball before we played. Dodgeball's hard to play sometimes because everyone, everyone's always like, you got hit, no, I didn't get hit, and you're sort of like mitigating those kinds of fights. And so what I'd often say is, hey, just remember, one day we're all gonna stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ and you're gonna feel really dumb having to answer for lying at dodgeball. Um, <laughs> I've been told that's too heavy of a thing to mention before playing dodgeball, so I've, I've changed my practice. So one thing gives me a lot of comfort, right? That my faith rests on Jesus. And the other encourages me that what I do actually matters. I once heard this terrific sermon given by Tim Keller on this passage. And so much of it stuck with me. I actually went back in my journals to find the, my notes on it. And here's what he said. He said, justice and justification are joined at the hip. Justice and justification are joined at the hip. He said this, how you regard that poor man shows whether you are saved by faith. That line stuck with me for a while. So rather than trying to go under the hood and try and peek at the grading rubric, let's just do what he tells us to do. But let's back up a little bit. The last two weeks, we've been hearing these parables that lead us to this point, and they're all related. So two weeks ago, it was about the wise and the foolish virgins, right, and the oil, and, and the takeaway was how we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to keep our lamps trimmed and burning, as it were. And then last week, we heard about the talents about how God holds us accountable for using the opportunities that he's given us, the platform he's given us, for taking risks, for being his people in the world. Okay, so we have to be ready, we have to do the things with what we have, 
And what follows is this image of Jesus coming to judge with very practical and particular things, right? Because you could go through those first two parables and have all kinds of ideas about what God's calling you to do. But then we get here, and Jesus says, and this, this is the stuff that I'm talking about when I say, be active. It turns out what Jesus expects of those who belong to his kingdom looks a lot like that good shepherd in Ezekiel, right? How is it that the sheep were faithful? They fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed strangers, clothed the naked, visited sick and imprisoned. These are the things. That's what God promised to do, right? I'm going to come back and I'm going to strengthen the weak and I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted. And listen, we look at that list and we can do all kinds of like metaphors on it. Or we can think like, man, I've got to start up a homeless ministry. I've got to start a prison ministry. But before you do that or try and turn it into something big, let's just do those things. Like, like literally do the stuff that he said. Bring food to hungry people. Clothe people who need clothes. These things are even more simple and attainable than the list in Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel, the shepherd's binding up injured. But all that Jesus' sheep did was fed and clothed and visited people sick and in prison. He didn't, they don't set the hostages free. They just show up. They just show up and be present. Note, of course, what isn't listed in Jesus' list. Jesus could have said, the sheep are those who believed all the correct ideas about the Son of Man, or those who studied God's word and understood magnificent things about God, or those who worshiped most faithfully and fervently, or those who did mighty acts in the power of the Spirit. I don't want to be reductionistic, because all that stuff is important, and Scripture attests to the importance of all those things. But when Jesus himself in this moment wants to give a depiction of what it means to keep your lamps trimmed and burning, what does it mean to be faithful with your talents? These are the things he says we need to do. And it does, it's not, we don't have to always like cut everything else out, but I think it matters. I think it matters that these things were so important to Jesus that this is what he mentioned. When we celebrate Christ as king, we long to be citizens of his kingdom, which means operating in his ways. And it requires us not just to do a few extra acts of charity with our extra time. You don't get to call Jesus king and then build your life around the American dream of prosperity and just do Christian-y things whenever you get a chance. You're not a citizen of the kingdom of God if your identity is primarily in building a nice suburban life. And when you have time, you'll do some Jesus stuff. You, get, you don't get to call Jesus king unless you submit your whole life to him unless you choose to pattern things from the ground up on his kingdom, which means your life has to be patterned around a full and active love and compassion for others, and especially with the poor and the oppressed. Jesus identifies with them, and serving them means that we don't get anything out of it. That's the thing about giving to someone who doesn't have anything. They might not pay you back. <laughs> you don't get to network with the homeless. Unless, unless we take Jesus' words very seriously and recognize that in, in serving those who can't give us anything back, we're networking with the king himself. In that case, I'm networking with the most important people. The world may say you don't matter, but our king says that's where I am. That's what I want to call us to this morning. We can't make Jesus our king. We can't celebrate Christ the king with some sort of generic Jesus who makes no demands of us who's distant, who's showing up later, but he's absent now. I want to fix our eyes on the true Jesus, the Jesus as revealed to us in the Gospels, who told us a lot of stuff, 
who told us how he thinks we should live. I want to look at him as king and what his kingdom is like. And if we don't, we may find ourselves like those crowds on Good Friday who end up shouting, what? We have no king but Caesar. Those crowds were looking for God as king, but when the king was in front of them, they refused to accept him. That's a warning moment. There's lots of people. We like to look at the Pharisees and the crowds who reject, rejected Jesus as like a bunch of dummies who like, man, I would have been different. I don't know. There weren't a whole lot of people different then. So let me close on a few more thoughts about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. So we prayed in our call like this morning, almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved son, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The kingdom of Jesus is defined by our king who is going to make all things new, not make all new things. I'm going to say that again. There's some wordplay there. Jesus is making all things new. He's not making all new things. The things that we interact with, God doesn't want to obliterate them. He wants to restore them. The New Testament witnesses again and again that God's desire is repentance, that his, his delay is kindness. His kindness is meant to lead to repentance. God doesn't want the people who oppose the church the most to be obliterated. He wants them to turn to him. God doesn't want the systems and structures and powers to resist him. He wants them to fall in line because his kingdom is good. In today's passage in Corinthians, Paul quotes Psalm 8, and he applies it to Jesus, right? That for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And, you know, Paul's saying there's a very particular way that things will be subject to Jesus as our king. But when that psalm was written, the psalmist had all of humanity in mind, right? What, what are humans that you look on them and made them a little lower than the angels and have subjected the world to, to our feet. From the beginning, God has made us a little lower than the angels and given us dominion. That idea of dominion goes all the way back to Genesis. When you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you see what's going on, you see that God created men and women in his image as image bearers, not just people who possess an image, but people who are bearing and going out with his image, meant to be priests over the temple of his creation. I mean, when God sets up the people of Israel in Exodus, he wants them to be a kingdom of priests. What are priests? People who mediate God's presence to others. That's what humans were meant to be, priests to creation. We were always meant to participate in God's goodness for the flourishing of the earth. I don't think the life of the world to come is going to be poolside lounging at the celestial spa. It's once again getting to participate in God's good creation without sin and decay rotting away God's good things. We have this mistake where we, we take sort of modern ideas about retirement that like the commercials give us, that retirement's about like sitting back and doing nothing, right, John? Retirement's about sitting back and doing nothing. <laughs> we, and we, we take that and we transplant it back to Eden and we say the Edenic state was just people sitting back and enjoying their time and lounging with little like drinks with umbrellas in them. That's not the good picture of creation that we get. We get people who participated with God. Theologians have suggested that it's not that we're going to return back to the way things were in Eden, but what, where Eden was supposed to go. God's, Adam and Eve were meant to cultivate the earth, to create, to be part of goodness. This is the picture of goodness that we're invited to. Not sitting back and relaxing, but actively participating in what God wants. Now, there's some who take this idea of dominion and take it to mean that we as Christians are meant to be in power. They, they take dominion and power and they put them together. 
that we need to then dominate culture and politics, right? For me, I don't see that in scripture. What I see is a God whose victory came through the cross. I see Paul telling us that we should have this in mind among ourselves, that Jesus, though equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Right? That's from Philippians 2. That's probably one of the first Christian hymns. God doesn't have multiple personalities. Jesus didn't come preaching, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, only for later to tell us that, just kidding, you don't have to be meek after all. You get to domineer and destroy and take over. Right? How did Jesus get victory? How are we called to live? Is it to follow Jesus or is it to try and be Caesars in Jesus' name? The point isn't for us to be on top. Jesus is on top. We're just citizens of his kingdom. And what we see this morning is that central to the kingdom of God is the establishment of justice in the restoration of all things, including the restoration of relationships between humans. In Ezekiel, after God brought everyone back, there's this little bit about judging between sheep, right? So here, listen to this again. I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between ram and goats. By the way, goats aren't always bad. It's just goats are just different than sheep. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? And when you drink of clear water, must you foul the rest with your feet? Must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have fouled? The Lord will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you pushed with flank and shoulder and butted at all the weak animals with your horns until you scattered them far and wide. I'll save my flock. They shall no longer be ravaged and I will judge between sheep and sheep. So this bit about treading grass and trampling on it or treading water and dirtying it, this is about people who get good things for themselves, get first pick at the well, and then do not care for others. They dirty the water so no one else gets it. They don't care. They got their fill. The selfish and the self-focused sheep get judged. So justice looks like those who have access to resources, who get first pick, actively making sure there's enough for everyone. And, and please, be careful not to let modern political and economic arguments be your starting place. You don't start with how culture defines political issues and how Americans define economics. You don't start there. You start with the kingdom of God, and you build whatever you think about the best use of power after that. So we start from this. It's bad when there are some who have a lot and others who have none, right? That's the kingdom of God's starting place. It is not good for there to be people who have a lot and others who have none. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it certain made, certainly made Jesus' hearers uncomfortable when he told them the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man who doesn't even get named. He's just a guy who eats a ton, and he's doing well, and there's a poor man outside of his doors. And in Jesus' depiction, again, this isn't like a, a for-all rubric for what judgment looks like, but the rich man ends up in punishment, and, the, and Lazarus, this poor man, gets, gets to be next to Abraham. Why is that? It's not just because God hates rich people. It's that God looks at someone who has a lot with a poor guy outside of his door and says, that's not right. This is, this is how God sees things. So however you figure out, there's lots of different economic systems that can accomplish these goals, and you can debate it all you want, and I can debate it all I want. But if it's not starting from this position, that it is bad for some to have lots and others to have none, you will build it on a wrong foundation. It will not be on the foundation of the kingdom of God. This, in fact, was so important to the early church that, that one theologian, Basil of Caesarea, put it like this. He said, if you have two coats and there's a poor person who has none, you don't have two coats. You have one coat and you have his coat. 
And if you don't give his coat back to him, you're stealing it. That's how seriously they took this idea. And frankly, I can't make a biblical argument against that. I feel uncomfortable sometimes. I feel uncomfortable when Jesus tells a rich man to sell all of his things and give it away to the poor and follow him. Because I can't tell you that Jesus isn't telling you to do the same thing. Not from the pulpit. Now, if we sit down and we're trying to work out things, I don't know, maybe I'll soften my, maybe my knees will get weak and I'll be like, ah, you don't have to do that. But I don't know, maybe God's calling you to do that. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but I know if we want to be citizens of Christ's kingdom, God's calling us to care actively about those who have not. And if we have some, we need to think very carefully about what of that actually belongs to someone else. And here's another beautiful thing that's going on here. I talked about restoration. The word for judgment between the sheep and the sheep and Ezekiel, it's, it's not the same as like a punitive judgment. It's, it's a word for restoring relationship, for bringing shalom, for bringing peace between people. God's desire is to restore and to reconcile. And so yes, that requires judgment, maybe some harshness, but the point isn't that God's coming to slap the fat sheep down. It's repentance so that the sheep can be together again. Making Christ's kingdom central means we're joining with him in the restoring work of how things ought to be, where people have what they need, where people can be happy. Think about Isaiah, when he paints this picture of what God's kingdom is going to be like. Come, those of you who don't have money, buy milk that doesn't cost anything. That's, when Isaiah was given a vision of what the good life was going to be, it was that the people could live long and they could have what they needed. The reconciliation work we give, Paul says, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And that's reconciliation between people and God, people who do not know this king who loves them, who are in active rebellion against them, and we can say there is a good king who loves you. And reconciliation between people, people who are at odds with each other. The good things that the sheep are doing in Matthew 25 isn't about good works. It's about taking blessings you've been given and seeing that they ought to be distributed to those in need. So I think the way we reflect on this challenge this morning isn't how do I go out and serve out a more food pantry? How do I add one more thing? So, I mean, sure, do that. That's fine, and maybe God's calling you to do that. But what I think we need to reflect on, my call for us, for me this morning, is who are you? Discipleship and obedience to God is seen in acts of love and mercy, and it springs from an identity based in Christ who loves all people and desires that the oppressed and the poor and those who are hurting to be bound up. It comes from a life that is centered around the king and the kingdom, not a life that tries to add king and kingdom into our already very busy schedules. So what I challenge us to do this morning is actually way harder than just like going to the food pantry and volunteering for Peter Marin Center. Although like volunteer for the Peter Marin Center. It's to take the hard look inwards to see is Christ king in our lives or not? He can't be king if something else or someone else is sitting on the throne of your heart. There's only room, there's one throne. And so it gets to be Jesus or it gets to be someone else. Right? I mean, that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go home and have some deep thoughts too. Don't worry. <laughs> this, is, this is pointed at me. So we can assess our actions. The way we behave might tell us which king we give allegiance to. The way in which we treat the poor or see the poor tells us something about what we think about Jesus who identifies himself with those in need. But again, I don't, this is a, this is a good Sunday. 
Christ the King Sunday is good news because we have a king who has established and is now establishing his kingdom. The resurrection of Jesus, that's the first fruits of what is to come. Things will be restored. Things are breaking in even now. Every time that God heals someone, and man, this church has got stories of healings of all kinds. Every time that happens, that is the, all, that is the not yet breaking into the already. That is God's restorative kingdom showing up a little bit early, <laughs> poking through that veil. And so the resurrection is our hope that that's going to continue. And as we enter into Advent, this season of waiting and anticipating for Christ's return, for the not yet to finally fully be here, let's pray that God would help us put Jesus on the throne of our lives and let his kingdom take priority. Who knows what he's going to have you do as a result of that? Who knows what kind of things God will do once he makes himself king of your life? Once you allow him to be king and once you say, all right, God, I'm not going to tack you on first. We're going to knock down the Jenga blocks and we're going to put you at the base and we're going to see what gets built afterwards. Maybe it'll look really the same. Maybe it'll look totally different. I don't know, but I can tell you it's going to be good. God's kingdom is not a bad kingdom that we have to like have a rough life now and then maybe get the payout later. It's not just delayed gratification. God's kingdom is good and living his way is abundant. And it doesn't look abundant the way the world thinks abundance looks, right? You might not have all the things that seem appealing for now, but man, you're going to have things that, that are good, that are deeply good, that are like, when I think of this, I think about like a good home-cooked meal, right? Like just good, filling, like Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> That's what it's like. Or whatever, whatever you have, turkey, ham, whatever. But it'll be good because it's going to be participating in the work that God started in our King Jesus, the reconciliation and restoration of all things. And that's what we look at directly on Christ the King Sunday. That's what today's about. We'll get to work and we'll get to some repentance in Advent. That's coming. But today, let's fix our eyes on Jesus who loves us and loves to restore things and pray that he does that even in our hearts now. Amen.